Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. In T-minus three, two, one, we begin the fun. Touring our way through the NBA from that big, big apple to the place by the bay. Is your mind buckled in? Because it's time to begin. Seiko and his friends are doing it again. The Hang Time Podcast is the spot, so sit back, relax, because the show's about to drop. Welcome into another edition of the Hang Time Podcast. I'm your host, Seiko Smith, here in Atlanta. As always, digging in to the stories and the voices from the basketball world, both past, present, and future, hopefully. Uh, just trying to get our heads around what's going on right now with this stoppage, the, the coronavirus, global pandemic, slowing everything down. But it, it doesn't interrupt the conversations we're having with the folks in the basketball world. And joining us today on the podcast is Dave Cowens, uh, Hall of Famer, uh, a champion, uh, Boston Celtics great and a founder of the Retired Players Association for the NBA. And uh, we've talked to, to some other folks, Johnny, Johnny Davis most recently um, from the Retired Players Association. But Dave, we want to definitely get you in here. We, ha- we had a conversation at All-Star Weekend that, that unfortunately didn't see the light of day before the suspension of play happened. So I appreciate you taking some more of your time. Um, and with, and curious, first and foremost, about, uh, you know, how you're doing and how you're handling this, this global shutdown with the coronavirus. Well, um, uh, thanks for asking. I hope you're doing well. I think everybody seems to be trying to stay out of harm's way and using common sense based on what we know up to date, you know, and, um, you know, but, uh, I think, I think people got to get out and do things. And, uh, as long as they are doing the right things for themselves and their families, the only problem is, you know, when you got kids and grandkids and you go to the store, they go, well, I don't know. We might have to quarantine you for another 14 days. I'm going, come on. <laughs> I got to be able to, I got to be able to hug my grandbabies, you know? <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, we we seem to be doing, a, we, I'm in Maine. And so it's not a densely populated area. So there's plenty of room to walk around and breathe fresh air and, and all that. So um, we're kind of in a little bubble up here and we're trying to stay in it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so, I mean, I'm interested you know, you're in Maine now, you say, and I know you played, you know, basically the, most of all your career except for the time you spent with the Bucks, I guess, in Boston. You're a guy from Kentucky. Um, how, how does one transition from, from Newport, Kentucky to Maine? How, what, what kind of transition is that? A lot of hillbillies up here too, you know. <laughs> Is is it just a we're everywhere? 
But is it is it just a matter of you, you know, when you play that long in Boston, you be kinda you come a New Englander maybe and and find that Maine suits you, I guess, um, in terms of just that lifestyle you like you mentioned, being in that bubble and being being able to kind of live relaxed in, in the way you do now? I just look at it, you know, I spent my first seventeen years of life in Kentucky and um and then I went to Florida State, and um, you know, nine months of that years I was in Florida, three months in Kentucky. Then I came to Boston, and since 1970, which is almost 50 years, I've been, you know, pretty much up in New England. So comparatively speaking, uh, you know, I've, I've met, besides for lifelong friends that I made, you know, that I had as a kid, and relatives, and that kind of feeling you have about home. You know, um, New England is really my home. So, what what led you from from Newport to Florida State? That that would seem like a, a pretty bold move even then to to go from Kentucky, which I know is you know basketball crazy, you know as a state, just the, the love for the game of basketball. Why Florida State? What was that about Florida State that that appealed to you at that time? Well, they had eight girls for every guy on campus at that time. And so that was an appeal. It didn't help me a whole lot, but it was an appeal going into it. Um, let's see. Uh, they had never had a really strong basketball program. And so I felt like I could play. And I was one of those kids that um, if I was playing, you know, that, that's what made me the most happy. Um, I was not a good bench guy. I had to be playing. And um, so I knew I had a better chance of not having to live up to some former great player and, and a big tradition of basketball and all that. So um, that, that sort of went with the least resistance. It was away from Kentucky. And so that was good. I wanted to get out and, you know, get out on my own and away from, you know, all the contacts that I had in Kentucky for the most part. Because I only had about 10 offers for major schools, and most of them were like Eastern Kentucky, Western Kentucky, uh, Louisville, uh, Murray, um, you know, Dayton, uh, Cincinnati, those kind of places. Um, so uh, I was not one of those uh, well-regarded, high, you know, um, recruit type of players coming out of high school. So I thought it fit, it fit me real well to go down there. Was it was there any sort of culture shock at Florida State for you coming from the you know from where you came from in Kentucky? Was I mean a, a lot of people talk about their college years being kind of an enlightening time where they kind of get get a, a whole new perspective. Was it like that for you just culturally at, at Florida State? Culturally, socially, um, educationally, um, uh, financially, looking at things and seeing where you fit, you know, out of your neighborhood and where there was so much more wealth and prosperity down on the campus and you see people riding around in, in cars and, you know, you got a bunch of 17 to 22 year old people on campus and uh, you look how they dress and how they walk, how they talk, where they're from. So that was, um, that was a big awareness and growing part of, you know, my life at the time. After a while, I thought that could be true. So about two months into it, I didn't like it. I wanted to go back home. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't like the atmosphere. I thought it was kind of phony, 
you know, and a uh, big man on campus kind of bull crap going on. I said, I don't need this. So, um, but, uh, so I, you know, um, weathered that storm and, um, and then anyway, just after a while, about three months or so, I, I just sort of act, got assimilated a little bit into it. But I was lucky because, you know, I had a team, I had a group, um, and we, you know, we lived together in a dormitory along with the other students and the other athletes on campus. So that was good for me because you always have somebody that, that was going through kind of the same thing, the adjustment. I was just curious. I, I was such a that's such a different time in the game. You know, we're talking about at that time before, uh, you know, the NBA really became what it did in, in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, you know, like you said, Florida State wasn't a, a necessarily a blue blood basketball program, but it certainly, um, you know, served as a, as a catapult for you to the NBA. When did, when did you, during your Florida State career, kind of get an understanding of where you fit in the basketball world in terms of you would have a chance to play at the NBA level and, and be, you know, be one of those top picks in the draft and have an opportunity to, to have a professional career. At what stage of, of your time at Florida State did that become clear to you? Uh, not really until um, my senior year. I hadn't really thought about it too much. Um, as you, you mentioned, it was uh, being in school was an, important and, and catapulted me. When you talk to Hugh Durham, he'll say that having me down there sort of was uh, catapulted the pro basketball program at Florida State, you know, to where, mm-hmm. you know, we had a lot of success. Um, Hugh was the uh, new coach um he was the head coach died the summer between my senior year and when i went to you know started school there so hugh durham was the assistant coach and he became the head coach and um we played freshman ball at that time um and uh, we had a hugh had, had really tried to um recruit out of the florida uh, southern georgia area um so, you know, he was trying to get guys from New Jersey and up in Ohio and Kentucky where he was from. He was from Louisville um, and played basketball and football and baseball. He was a heck of an athlete and was a real competitor in many sports throughout his whole life, including, you know, being a, a top-ranked badminton player and a handball player. When that all started, he was a very competitive guy. Um, and so, you know, to get – with somebody like that, uh, that really was starting his own career. He was a Florida State grad as well, you know, a thousand point score down there. So to, to, you know, to get in there, he was trying to build a culture and he knew it, you know, had to get out of running the shuffle offense, you know, and had to open it up and, you know, get some good athletes. Um, and, um, so in 66, he saw something in me that a lot of other coaches didn't and wanted me to come down there. And um, it, it turned out pretty good. I took it seriously. I, I trained hard. You know, I did a lot of extra stuff on my own. And, um, you know, we, we grew together to a point where we had, um, you know, a top – I think we were ranked 11th my senior year at 23-3 and three record. Uh, the bad thing was we were on probation. But at least um, we, you know, we set the stage for him to tell other players that he's recruiting about, you know, Florida State's a serious contender. And as a matter of fact, two years after that year, they went to the finals 
and lost to UCLA with a, against the Walton team. And, um, and that's something that I was thinking about that. You had the finals of the champions, finals of the NCAA tournament, and the UCLA team gets to play on its home court. Well, they, they were winning so much. Back, back then, they got a bye. So they got a buy. So the wooden teams, if you put it in perspective, just look at it. The wooden teams, uh, if you won a championship the year before, the next year you got a buy in the first round. So you only had to win three games. It could be a champion mm-hmm. in the tournament. And they didn't have tournaments then, uh, different um, like ACC or SEC conference tournaments. Um so, um, yeah, but I thought that was an um, interesting thing to be able to play the finals on your home court. It'd be a pretty nice benefit if you were UCLA, I guess. Those <laughs> I, I think you would say it helped them. Might have helped them a little bit. What do you think? No question. No question. So you, yeah. so you go from Florida State into the Celtics, you know, organization, which yep. was known for, for being championship level. Um, what, what was – what was that like just in terms of stepping into that professional environment and, and obviously having enough success that, you know, you, you get your hands on a, you know, on some rookie of the year hardware. Um, but just knowing what the history of that organization was and maybe what the expectation would be for you at, in your time with the Celtics. Well, you know, I think it just, you roll the dice and you just go out there and you compete and you find out what everybody's all about. You know, you grow up playing sports and you realize that a lot of people will tell you how good they are, but until you play, you really don't know against somebody. And, um, so you just can't believe the hype and you got to be serious and humble and, and figure, well, I put all this work into it. Um, let's see what everybody's got. I, I didn't know too much about, the NBA, there were very few games on TV. I didn't own a TV all through college, so I didn't watch too many games. I, I tell people that the, the the third NBA game that I ever saw, I was in it. And so as far as, as far as being live, I saw some on TV, obviously, with the Celtics playing on Sundays. And they had, I think Sunday was the only game. They had one game on a week back then. And um, – so it was it was different. I didn't really know the league, and the league certainly didn't know me. I know that. <laughs> so that so to me, you know, to me, you know, there was a whole thing. You talk about championships. Yeah, you follow in Boston. Bill Russell retired the year before. They had a year in between to where they got the fourth pick in the first round, and that's when they selected me. Um, mm-hmm. And. Oh, but before that, they had won 11 championships in 13 years. Now that's, that's uh, you know, they talk about the last dance and the Jordan stuff and the Lakers and everybody else. But, um, you know, those, those guys, Sam Jones and uh, Bill Russell and Casey Jones and Kuzi and Heitzen and all those guys, yeah. um, <clears throat> you know what I mean? They can talk about continued excellence. Um, so, yeah, you walk into it and you go, well, it's sort of silly to think that you, you know, can match any that any of that, but you bring your own distinctive style and you try to make your contribution, you know, one one possession at a time and be as consistent as you can, bring whatever you bring to the game and see what happens. I, I wonder, did you, you know, when you look back on it now, 
I mean, two-time champion, uh, MVP in 1973, eight-time All-Star. Um, you know, all the things you accomplished in the league from from such a from such a, a place where you weren't sure even until late in your college career that you'd have a professional career to accomplish as much as you did as a player. Did when when did it resonate with you just how much work you'd put in and how much you'd accomplished? Because, I mean, if anybody's looking at this resume, it blows your hair back just to see what was done. I think competition. Um, I'm sorry. I think it, it's just all about the competition. I love the competition, uh, you know, and um, no matter what it was, it's like anybody else, um, you know, in any profession, no matter what you do, uh, you really you have to have a fire in your belly for it, and you got to give it give it your best, you know. And um, if you don't, you're sort of cheating yourself. So if you find something that really smokes your shorts, and you know, do it to the best of your ability, you never know what's going to happen, where it's going to take you. So um, yeah, that was that was sort of my mantra, and um, I you know I was a guy that. It just, I loved, I loved getting up and down the floor. I was lucky. Um, I had that motor in me. I was lucky at, um, as a high school player and as a college player that the coaches were into upbeat basketball. I think them having me and my skill set on the team, you know, encouraged them to do that. But, you know, we averaged, my high school team, we averaged 90 points a game in a 32-minute 30, ball game. Wow. You know, I mean, so we pressed all the time. We were up and down. In college, in college, we averaged 90 points a game, 92 points a game. You know, um, so, you know, we pressed all the time. And I was on the front of that press, chasing little guys around, trying to channel them into the sidelines and get interceptions and make layups and keep the pressure on. That was so much fun for me because it fit. It fit my motor skills, you know. If you he, they talked about Dennis Rodman, I would say, um, and and uh, Draymond Green, I had that kind of enthusiasm and exuberance and through caution to the wind, you know. Um, and uh, that's what I love doing. And um, so it, when I got into the pros, it was like, oh, it's an upbeat game, and I was ready to I was ready to get up and down. I was glad that I played in those systems um, because it conditioned me to play in those, you know, in the NBA. You, you were, you were obviously in an era when the big man was, was a dominant force in the game of basketball, maybe much so, more so than it is right now, obviously in this pace and space, three point shooting NBA, but you would have been considered an undersized center at six, nine, going up against some of the, the all-time great big men in the history of the league. What was, what was that challenge like physically, having to deal with Lou Alcindor and, you know, would later be cremated by those types of big men when you were in the, you know, in the midst of your playing career? Well, I mean, every, everybody. Uh, I didn't go in thinking that I was going to be the best, best center on the floor every game because I was playing against a lot of veterans um, you know, uh, the Bellamy's and the Reeds and Thurman's and, and, uh, Chamberlain's and Jabbar's and, you know, all those guys. Um, and so, you know, you go in and you just try to learn and you, and you try to push them. You want to see what, 
you know, how they deal with you because they don't know anything about you, you know, and mm-hmm. the 24 second installments, you know, you, you, you test everybody out and, and you don't really know how heavy a guy is and how strong they are until you feel them. You know, you get into a post-up situation and you feel and you see their quickness and you know how depth they are and what they, how they finish and that, that sort of a thing. So it becomes a trial and error. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of just trying to make your contribution and help your team win and to not get embarrassed <laughs> by somebody. <laughs> and, uh, that's the thing that always drove me. I hate being embarrassed. And mm-hmm. so you figure, I'm going to, you know, it, it, it happened quite a bit. A lot of guys took me to school quite a bit, but, um, you know, I tried to get back on them a little bit. Uh, you did. It looked like you did just fine to me. Um, huh. did, I'm I'm wondering too. You 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 mentioned the the Robins and the Draymonds. You think about the game and how it's evolved. What is, what is it about the game that you enjoyed post playing career? Then as a coach and obviously working in front office in a front office capacity. What what about the evolution of the game? Have you appreciated? I I would imagine that there are guys who played in your era who who like the the quicker the quicker NBA we see nowadays, the kind of more fast-paced, up-and-down NBA compared to that kind of rough-and-tumble um, 80s era of the NBA? Yeah, the, the, eight, the 80s and 90s, it got a little too physical, I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and um, uh, so the league had to do something. Um, and I think by, you know, eliminating some of that uh, hand-checking or guiding people around, um, and allowing the offensive players to, you know, strut their stuff and be able to, you know, um, entertain the people, which is what we're, you know, kind of what we are. It's it's similar to when football decided they didn't want to be having, you know, uh, tight ends and wide receivers getting knocked down five yards off the line of scrimmage because then they couldn't catch the ball, you know, and score touchdowns. Offense was thwarted. So, um, but if you look at our stats, the, the amount of points we average um, without a three-point play, you know, we were above 100 all the time. Um, and, you know, but we were running. We were shooting layups. The only way you got layups back then was if you had fast breaks. So you wanted to get down there and score as quick as possible. Uh, they, they pass the ball more now in their offenses than we ever did. I mean, if the one or two, three passes was the most. If the guy was open, you took it, you know, and hopefully it was a shot that they had a decent chance to make. Um, and so, you know, it was, it, it was a different kind of upbeat game, but uh, it was it was still upbeat. Mm-hmm. Just seems so like I like today's game. But, no, it's, it's just – it dawned on me just, you know, what must the game look like through, diff- through that lens, you know, when you played it in one era – coached it in these other eras um you know what what is like who, like who do you enjoy watching this playing the game today what are the teams or the styles you know or teams that play a style that you really appreciate or or enjoy watching in today's NBA well thank you they all look the same to me anymore <laughs> there's no there's no real difference everybody does middle pick and roll everybody right. does middle pick and roll to another pick and roll to a try to get a mismatch and then an isolation and dance on somebody and try to get into the paint or, you know, shoot a perimeter shot. You know, I would say most penetration results in, if not a layup, 
a three-point play, either the first pass out or the second. Um, and so basically everybody's doing the same thing because the analytics tell you to do it. If you hit three points is what you want all the time. That's what changed everything is that the, the emphasis on the, the, uh, the, uh, the statistics um, of what the three-point play brought to the game. And so now, you know, most of these guys, almost all of them are playing now. They never played when there was not a three-point play. So they don't understand how everybody scored and what we were trying to accomplish within our offensive sets and what we were trying to prevent the other team, you know, from doing, you know, with their offensive sets. Um, You know what I mean? So there was a total different mindset about how you score and the importance of the particular shot that you were trying to get at, get to in your offense. So if you think about it, you had a UCLA set, you had the Hawks set, you, you know, you had um, some spread offenses, um, but everybody, coaches had their different styles and offenses. Now everybody pretty much does the same. Mm-hmm. Or if they see something they like, they copy it right away. Yeah, you know, and coaches are still pretty good at they're able to be, creative uh, doc rivers uh, when it was he was in boston he had he had some he was doing things like guard setting picks for guard in the middle you know and, and flaring people out and trying to you know really swing the ball up top um and, and so but it all was about the fact that the defense was spread out more mm-hmm. and, and so then you start um you know, strategizing on how to take advantage of that and so that's why the big man doesn't play as much of a part because he's not as in the center of the action as much. He becomes kind of just like the power forward or the, who, anybody else that he's going to go up and set a pick and roll or pop. But it used to be most of the plays that you ran, the center had the ball and the center was making a play, mm-hmm. you know, out of the post, out of the deep post, the elbow or the high post. And um, you were trying to get an open shot by moving off the ball, coming off of picks and that sort of a thing. Um, so there was very little dribbling. Actually, coaches discouraged dribbling. They thought it was, you know, led to too many turnovers. Mm-hmm. And if you tried to get into the paint, there was a lot of activity, a lot of arms and legs to get through because the big guys were there. And Archie Clark always says, man, if I play in today's game at – there was a lot of open room for me to, you know, get into the paint, you know. And uh, he said, but back then there wasn't. You had to work around the perimeter, move without the ball, and take, you know, 15, 18-foot jump shots, and you could get wide open. So all that all that changed when the three-point play became really the, the premier shot that everybody wants. Um, and um, I, so when it first came out um, – in the 89, it was the 79, 80 season. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, you know, the three-point play, I get it. I know you want to keep people in the stands and their interest late in the game because you can, you know, three points, you can get back in the game quicker and keep people in their seats, maybe buy a couple more beers before they go home or some popcorn <laughs> or whatever, you know, the, you know, from a revenue-generating standpoint. So I got it. So I said, okay, let's, let's just have the three-point play in the fourth period. So that you got a chance to come back into the game, it becomes a specialty shot, and that was my that was my thought then, and I still feel the same way. I think it still would be a great experiment 
to watch players play with just the two-point for three quarters and then be able to open it up with the three-point play in the fourth period. Well, I, I never thought of that. That would be – that would change the dynamics for sure, um, you know, the game. Because now yeah, it, would give so everybody, it would give everybody an appreciation of what the game was like for the first, what, 50 years? Right, right. From 47, let's see, what is that? 37, 37, 37, 30, 30 some years, 35 years. Right, right. No, it's different. I mean, I remember I was, I'll never forget, I was in high school in Michigan when the first year they, they adopted the three-point shot. And my high school team was, I was a ninth grader, but our varsity team was, you know, tallest player, maybe 6'3". And they just ran like crazy and shot threes and, and had the, the, the best three-point shooting numbers in the entire state that year. Um, but it definitely was a change, like a sea change, where you could tell the game yeah. was going to become something totally different. Yeah, and, and I tell you, the one downside I see of it, because there is so much one-on-one, -on -one, it becomes, I kind of say, you know, we lost some of the um, sportsmanship elements um, to the game. I uh, see sportsmanship got replaced by show-offmanship. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's like trying to break ankles and everybody going crazy when a guy gets faked out or right. dribbled out. And, you know, you're doing, you know, um, and, and so I don't like that. I never did like that. Uh, it didn't fly when I was a player in any level of trying to embarrass somebody or get make having fun doing that kind of a thing. Um, mm -hmm. And um, And so I thought that some of that, some of that um, behavioral discipline and you know went away when um, it got into well we're gonna we're gonna go one on one you know and that kind of a thing and um, and then it got to where guys were standing over people and and talking so much trash and all that and I thought you know to me that, that's not really a good um, a good thing to to show. Uh, the uh, young players how to how to act with the game, uh, mm -hmm. and when they're playing and competing, you know, almost like they had disrespect for their opponents instead of having respect for them. You know, a little bit of that crept into the game, and it, it got more and more and more. But it yeah. seemed like you know the fans kind of liked it. It was something they could focus on, and it became. You know, the game became a little more controversial. So, and then when more people started talking about it, you know, it's just, it's one of those things. You know, now you, you listen to talk, the, the talk shows and all that stuff, and it's always about somebody's attitude or somebody's, you know, did this <laughs> and somebody said this about somebody else. And I'm like, what is, what is this like entertainment tonight or what's going on? <laughs> I thought this was sports. It's not, you know, reality TV, you know, and everybody's, you know what I mean? That's what, I, and I don't like that about sports. Uh, it's sort of growing up being old school. I think mean, just I, I like the more disciplined, humble approach, and that you respected people. I, like you know, when I played, there was if you dunked on somebody, and there wasn't a lot of dunking mm -hmm. um, because you didn't have to. And then if you dunked on somebody and made a big deal of it, you're probably going to get knocked on your ass one or two times, <laughs> one or two plays down the road. Somebody was going to sucker you. Somebody was going to get you up the back of your neck, you know, <laughs> and that's just the way it was because you didn't want to show show anybody up. Right. You know, there was that respect. And I think that's gone away a bit. 
Yeah, it's a different era, this, this social media era, even for me, uh, watching it, you know, just growing up watching the the NBA in a different era. It's a completely different uh, iteration of the game right now. You uh, uh, Looking at your, your coaching career was fascinating to me, you know, to have coached in the NBA, the CBA, um, the WNBA. I mean, you, you, you got a chance to touch the game in so many different ways. And I'm curious, what, what was it about coaching that, that presented a, a challenge that you liked uh, in all of these different phases? I mean, certainly the coaching the Chicago Sky um, in 2005 and six had, I mean, that had to be really interesting, you know, at the advent of what the WNBA has become, of course. Um, but early in its existence to be a coach in that league. I'm, I'm curious, just what was that like? What, what was the different maybe factors that went into coaching the WNBA compared to the CBA or the NBA and other places you've been? Well, you didn't have purses and makeup and stuff like that all around in your training room or on the scores table during practice. And, you know, so that was, it was a, it was, it was definitely different. Let's just say that. And I think there's, um, you know, there's a different mentality, I think, with some of the um, the, the uh, lady players um, that, you know, there wasn't this big yearning or desire to be the dominant player. It was a lot more of the kind of, um, I'll just be part of the team and do my part and don't worry about how many minutes I play and I don't have to average a lot of points and run offenses through me. It was a different mindset with a lot of, you know, of the players um, and not with the really good ones, you know, the other, the really good players, they wanted to dominate. They had that feeling, but I just thought there was more of that laissez-faire kind of attitude in the women's game. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and so that was different. The CBA was just, you know, low budget, uh, terrible travel, um, you know, the talent, all you wanted to do as a coach was to try to get a guy a chance to get into the NBA and make a few bucks. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, that was my outlook on a CBA experience. Um, and, um, so I tried them out. I just wanted to see what it was like. I always, I was an athletic director at a small women's college. So I got to see college sports, um, little bit from that avenue uh from that viewpoint um so um but the 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 pro coaching um you know i i enjoyed the experience i enjoyed starting out well actually i was the last player coach to coach for you know in the nba when i did it with the celtics the year before bird came with the team Mm -hmm. that was a big mistake you know after that season i told him i wasn't going to coach anymore and just was going to be a player and so we drafted Bird. I go, well, if I'd have stayed coach, I'd have been a coach of the year, you know. <laughs> he got a 29-win season. I could have had a 60-win season if I'd have stayed coaching. <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, um, but it, it was good, and it was challenging. I mean, I, I looked at our stats. So cool. And we, um, we won over 50 games twice when I was with Charlotte. Mm-hmm. And a margin of victory was one, two, one, two, or three points. Wow! Win wow. over fifty games. So you know, there's the, the the you can't afford to make a lot of mistakes as a coach when your margin of victory 
over 82 games is, you know, a one basket or basket right. and a half. Right. And so that's the, that's really the, the, um, you know, your, your real job is to be as efficient as you possibly can, um, you know, and keep, keep the team and, and, and get a, an attitude around the team that, you know, we're all, we're like a grove of trees. Maybe not every tree looks great on its own, but all together it can be, you know, very beautiful and structurally and, and you know, that type of a thing. And, um, you know, that's, you got to try to, you got to try to have the right kind of people um, on your team that buy into that, you know, uh, that's, that's one of the, you know, the real, the real challenges of coaching in the NBA, besides for the fact that you're playing against really good players and really good coaches every night. Right. I know you, you know, you and, were... and they say, they say that, you know, you, these guys, oh, they're not playing hard and all that stuff. I know one thing, if you don't play hard in a game, you're going to lose mm. in the NBA. If you think he can just mail it in, you know, it, it just doesn't happen. So. Two competitive levels, you know, at the NBA level. I certainly haven't covered it for the last 20 years for me. It's, it's, I, I laugh at the idea that they don't play defense or don't play hard in the NBA when I hear people say that. And I'm like, you have no idea. You know, you have no idea how, how much more physical and technically sound a game it is at the NBA level compared to all the other levels of basketball. Um, I, know, I know when you coached in Charlotte, you know, the, the, you know, those little good teams and it, people act, that remember this, you know, that, that Kobe Bryant was drafted and then traded to the Lakers. Um, do you feel like in hindsight somebody somebody played played you? They didn't tell you how good well, Kobe I, was going to be. <laughs> I don't think anybody knew. I mean, he you know, thirteen teams passed on him. Right. <laughs> All right. So you know, and and we had a real need for a big, um, and um, and I had just taken that job in the summer, so. Um, I remember I, tra I traded Kobe Bryant, and I had never seen him play on tape oh, or anything. Wow. I had never seen – I don't know anything about Kobe Bryant when we made that trade. It was done with the general manager, Bob Bass, and, um, and Jerry West, and, um, you know, and the agent, and Kobe's agent, and Kobe himself. Right. You, know, he, he, you know, he says that we drafted him and traded him. No, he told us that he was not going to play in Charlotte if we drafted him, that he wanted to go to a big market. So we said, okay, we got a high school kid. We don't know a lot about him. He's a high school kid. And, you know, he's not a big, and we need a big. And, yeah, he's going to be good. He's not going to, you know, and it still took him a couple of three years before he became Kobe Bryant because, you know, he grew into his adult body while he was sure. getting paid. So, um you know, it wasn't that big of a stretch to, to make that trade. But I, I have to tell you, I did trade one of the greatest all-time players and, and never had saw him play <laughs> on tape or anything. <laughs> that was my first, my first big move. <laughs> not, that, not that I made the move. I, was just, I just went along with it. I knew, I knew we needed a big. And I, so I was always all about getting Vladi because, you know, Vladi will give you, you know, 13, 8, and – 
five assists a game pretty consistently, and it'd even be even better in the playoffs. So that's what we needed when we were building the team. We had Glenn Rice and Del Curry, Muggsy Bogues. We had Mason. You know, so we, we, we had our bigs were rounded out. We had some pr- pretty good perimeter shooters and a good ball handler. So, um, you know, Kobe wasn't uh, the main, you know, talent skill set that we were looking for at the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's just interesting. You think about the evolution of the game and how different the focus has been over the past, you know, couple of decades. Um, and you mentioned those some of those players that you had on those Hornets teams. I, I feel like, and and I don't know if this is just the the fan in me that feels this way, but I always feel like there are great players that have come through the league in different areas who get overlooked historically. We kind of forget about how good some of these other players were. How how. The quality, you know, watching the last dance, as you mentioned earlier, I'm, I've been amused at people kind of glossing over the competition. Well, that those teams Jordan played weren't very good if you look at today's game. And I'm going, man, whatever area you're in, you're talking about the vet, the best of the very best out on those courts. They're great players in every era. It just looks different. But it doesn't take away to me from the fact that these at the time were the best players on the planet competing in the NBA. Well, I, I mean, you're right. I, obviously, you know, it, but the collective talent in the league as opposed to particular teams, but you always, the league is the same way now as it has always been. You got the top three, the top third, the bottom third, and the middle third, and it seems like it always breaks that way, and a lot of the teams in the top third stay there because they're able to, you know, um, keep that thing going like the Celtics did for so long and like the Bulls did and like the Lakers did and Detroit and Chicago and all those teams in Miami and San Antonio, you know, but you can't say, I mean, I just named those teams, but there's not many other franchises, you know, of the 30 that are out there that have been able to be that consistent. Right. You know what I mean? So there's something special about keeping, you know, keeping that, keeping the train rolling. Um, you know, when you when you got that talent and keeping that talent and keeping it keeping it um, hungry um, and, and together and focused on winning. In your in your time in league, and, and like I said, I appreciate you taking some time. I, I know we've kept you for a while, but I'm, I'm just curious. In your time in the league, as both a player and coach, what was the one kind of uh, correlation? You know, in terms of traits. That, that led to success was it was it that marriage of having a, a really sound organization structurally and and finding ways to put talent into place or was it just that never-ending search for the right mix of players and talent to come together to be successful because we watched the Bulls come out of nowhere I mean they had to build up once they got Jordan and build themselves into that dynasty franchise the Lakers and Celtics already had that um, but the Pistons had to learn how to become that kind of organization. The Warriors in recent years, obviously, have had to learn how to put all those things in place to be good for an extended period of time. Is there something that you can look at and say this this is the magic mix of, of components you need to be successful? I think you've got to marry um, the um, uh, front office um, desire the um and the head coach and and and, you know what that the principles and the 
that they bring. And then you got to get a really good player to buy into that. Number one, you've got to have those three things and you build on that. Right. If you look at all of the, the great franchises and being consistent, they had those three qualities about themselves and they stayed with it. They didn't try to get too smart are too clever about things. You know, they took chances, obviously, but they were, they, they, they really did their work. Um, I used to say, you know, guys like Red Arback, he was one of these guys that playing from a, from strength because when he got Russell, he knew he had somebody like nobody else has ever seen play the game, you know, with that athleticism and that length. And so all of a sudden when they start winning, Red became the guy where he would just, sort of, I always think about him hovering above the entire league and just picking and choosing the type of guys he wanted to play, have with Bill Russell, you know, and, and figuring out ways to get those guys, not based solely on talent, but also on character, you know, and, and intelligence um, and, um, and that type, that type of a thing. So he kept that going a long time, better than probably anybody else ever has. Just interesting. I always wondered that if there was if if there's some kind of defining trait, and and it, I know that everybody has studied it. It's not like we're we're talking about something that hasn't been examined a million times over. But it's it's just interesting that that yeah. there's formula that that travels from generation to generation like that. If you if you ever listen to Bill Russell talk about his experience with the Celtics and his and his um, friendship with Red Arbach, who was his, the guy who was paying him, the guy who was coaching him, you know, um, he, he describes it as heaven on earth, best thing that ever happened to him, you know, um, and um, and he and he he lives it to the day, you know. If, if a guy like when John Havlicek died in this past last May, you know, Bill Russell traveled from Seattle, Washington area all the way. To, to you know to be at that service mm. you know and um he's always there he's always he's doing it because that was you know the best part of his life he knew he had something special so when you get a coach a, a guy your best player mm. a great player like that have that kind of relationship with the coach that his um influence over everybody else on the team is huge you know, in terms of moving forward and doing what, what it takes to win um, and be successful and really enjoying it while you're doing it. Um, and that's what you have to have. You know, um, when Raleigh was out there, he had Jabbar and then he had, and then Magic, you know, but Jabbar was that solid, the solid guy. He was the guy that you need a basket. Magic wasn't shooting. Jabbar was shooting. Because he had proven, you know, that he was the guy. He was one of the best finishers in the game. But you had those guys that were the cement. Um, and um, and if you look at Popovich, he had David Robinson, and then he got Tim Duncan. He got two guys, the same of the same ilk, yeah. um, you know. And you just look at every team when when Riley was down in Miami. Who did he have in the beginning? Basically, he had, you know, when he got Alonzo Mourning you know, he had really something to build on. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, with Detroit, I guess it was probably Isaiah Thomas. Um, yeah. You know, Joe Dumars. Maybe Joe Dumars was the guy. I always thought Joe was the real leader of that team, just mm -hmm. in the way he performed and, 
you know, you could tell the, the, the respect that everybody had for him. Um, um, and so you always need those type, those types of people on the team to begin creating any kind of a long lasting, uh, success or a dynasty. It's just interesting. Very, very interesting way to look at things. Um, listen, I appreciate it. I hope the, hope the weather is good up there to you in Maine. Um, and, and you and the family stay safe and sound during during what is a, an unprecedented time, obviously, for everybody else. We don't have live basketball to, to digest right now, but um, it's a time to go back and look at maybe the history of the game a little bit. And, and always fun to do it. Dave Cowan's joining us here on the Hangtime Podcast. We appreciate your time, sir. Thank you much. You too. Um, take care of yourselves. All right. We'll do that. Thanks, Dave. Many thanks to – the Hall of Famer, Dave Counts, Boston Celtics, great. Join us on the Hangtime Podcast. He, I, I get schooled when I talk to, to some of the guys who played uh, in this league in a different era. I always like listening to the wisdom they share. Uh, Dave Counts, fantastic conversation and a fantastic guy, um, one of the league's greats. We appreciate him uh, and everybody else joining us here on the Hangtime Podcast throughout this shutdown. Um, We'll be here. We're not going anywhere, as I keep mentioning. We're going to keep finding people to talk to and delivering some compelling conversations about the game of basketball and everything else that's going on. So for my producer, Anthony Bonaparte, and everybody here at the Anytime Podcast, we'll see you next time. This one is done, but in case you want another one, here's the link to all the fun from Sekou Smith's Hangtime Run. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NBA.com slash Hangtime, or wherever.